Welcome listeners, but take heed. We will say whatever we need to share our knowledge, thoughts, and joy, and even things that do annoy. So join us now, but be aware. We have a tendency to swear. We'll dial it back a little bit. But frankly, we don't give a shit. Welcome to Just Keep Rolling, a Harry Potter book movie compare and contrast podcast. I'm Ellen, the innocent sounding one. And I'm Katie, the one who sounds like a filthy mouth trucker. So let's just keep fucking rolling into the rolling rehash. Last week, we discussed Chapter 8, The Flight of the Fat Lady, and its corresponding film scenes. Snape did not find imitation to be the highest form of flattery when learning about Neville's boggart. Hagrid's teaching methods underwent some massive overcorrection in the wake of the Buckbeak incident. The Hogsmeade chaperones let out a collective sigh of relief when they didn't have to babysit Harry. Lupin and Harry had a jam sesh on the bridge, but Harry wasn't nearly as curious about his dead parents as one would think. Sirius Black scared the acrylic out of the fat lady, Filch's penchant for hide-and-seek finally came in handy, and in case anyone forgot, Percy is head boy! Percy is head boy. During episode 47, Moody Little Death Magnet, we had two Potter ponderings. One was, what are your thoughts on the way the movie played up Lupin's friendship with Lily over his friendship with James? Max thought that him avoiding talking about his relationship with James was, A, in keeping with the film and how much Harry's mum is brought up, with Aunt Marge, the Dementors, etc., and B, indicative of how Lupin characterized himself as one of the Marauders. He definitely shared more of Lily's traits than James's. Which is a really good point. Carly loved that he had his own relationship with Lily outside of James. It makes his connection with Harry even deeper. Since he had a deep, meaningful relationship with both Lily and James, it created this wonderful bond for him to connect with Harry more. She also liked the fact that Lily and him had such a positive relationship that she was there for him in a time of need. Someone being there and genuinely caring about him is something he didn't have for so long. Also, Lily Lupin shipper. So... (laughs) Jackson also liked how it dove into Lupin's friendship with Lily because we didn't get much of that in the book. But it did completely gloss over his friendship with James. Quincy said, and I'm sure you'll all be shocked by this, Fuck the movies! Nothing against the actors, they are great. But the directors of the third and fourth movies are just ugh. He understands taking creative liberties, but Jesus H. Christ. It was almost Harry Potter by name alone. The fuck are they doing over there? The movies are just fucking fillers at this point. Samantha agreed with him, saying she never understood how anyone who didn't read the books could even follow the third movie. So much was left out. It was like a bad fanfic. Which, with some of the changes and omissions, I can see why it might feel that way. Our other Potter pondering was asking for some additional suggestions for ways people can make their boggarts ridiculous. Especially for those who weren't quite sure how they could. Specifically the creepy-ass clown. Which I apparently am not the only one who struggled with the clown. Emma said that she can't even think about Lupin right now. We mentioned that clown, and all she can think about is its monstrous grin and head bobbing. Seriously, how was that a solution to any boggart? It's bloody terrifying! Jackson also said that he has no idea how to make that clown ridiculous. Max says he doesn't have anything to say about that fucking clown. Carly says she could literally not with that fucking clown. (laughs) Your girl would be out of that classroom. 
Or maybe like turn it into a normal SpongeBob. IDK, it's stressful AF. <laughs> Kenneth thinks the creepy clown bogger would manifest itself differently to each person. He said, I would have its teeth jumping out of its head and I could easily see it tripping over its oversized shoes in a frantic effort to put them back in. Dave suggests turning the creepy clown into Snape in a dress and a bird hat. I mean, I guess if it worked once. Why mess with a classic, I suppose. Sure. Right. Overall, these weren't really that helpful, though. So I'm just going to go with Quincy's response and say, fuck that clown. Fuck that clown, indeed. (laughs) At least the solidarity was there. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Our trivia question last week was, what color are the sleeping bags that Dumbledore makes appear in the Great Hall on Halloween night? Dumbledore waves his hand and makes hundreds of squashy purple sleeping bags appear. Congratulations goes to Max Nash. This is his fourth week in a row. It's now our second longest winning streak. Which is still only halfway to Quincy's record. Though he doesn't seem too threatened by it, because his response was to share a gif awarding 10 points to Slytherin. As it should be. It's kind of cracking me up that of all of the people who have gotten really intense about answering the trivia question, none of them have been Ravenclaws. Actually, that makes a good point. Max is a Slytherin, Dave is a Hufflepuff, and Quincy's a Gryffindor. Where are Ravenclaws at? That's a good question. If anyone can break up Max's streak, I feel it would be a Ravenclaw. Though, I mean, I have no issue with a Slytherin streak, to be honest, but just saying. Of course you don't. Just like I have no issue with the fact that the longest winning streak belongs to Gryffindor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that note, let's just keep rolling into Chapter 9, Grim Defeat and the Corresponding Film Scenes. Chapter 9, Grim Defeat Professor Dumbledore sends all the Gryffindors back to the Great Hall, where they are joined by the students from Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, and Slytherin, who are all looking extremely confused. Dumbledore tells them that he and the teachers need to conduct a thorough search of the castle, and they are to spend the night there for their own safety. He leaves the head boy and girl in charge, and tells Percy to send word with one of the ghosts if there are any disturbances. He's about to leave, but pauses and waves a hand, making hundreds of purple sleeping bags appear. He tells them to sleep well, and closes the door behind him. Everyone begins talking immediately, and Percy tells them all to get in their sleeping bags, saying lights out in ten minutes. Harry, Ron, and Hermione seize three sleeping bags and drag them to a corner, talking about what had happened. All around them, everyone is wondering and making suggestions for how he got in. Hermione reminds them all of the enchantments on the castle, and Percy calls that the lights are going out and no more talking. Every hour, a teacher checks the hall to make sure everything is quiet. Around 3 a.m., Professor Dumbledore returns and looks around for Percy, who is right near Harry, Ron, and Hermione. They pretend to be asleep as Dumbledore comes closer and listen in as he tells Percy that there's no sign of black, but there's no sense in moving them now. He found a temporary guard for the Gryffindor portrait hole, and they found the fat lady hiding in the map of Argyleshire. Once she calms down, he will have Filch restore her. At this point, Snape walks up to them and reports that the whole third floor has been searched, as have the dungeons, astronomy tower, Professor Trelawney's room, and the owlry. Dumbledore says that he didn't expect Black to linger, and Snape asks him if he has any theories as to how he got in. Dumbledore says he has many unlikely ones, and Snape mentions a conversation they had at the start of term, saying it seems impossible that Black could have entered the school without inside help. 
Dumbledore very firmly says that he doesn't think a single person in the castle would have helped Black get in, and then says he must inform the Dementors that the search is complete. Percy asks if they had wanted to help, and Dumbledore says that no Dementor will cross the threshold of the castle while he is headmaster. They all leave, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione look at one another, and Ron wonders what that was all about. The next few days, everyone only talks about Sirius Black, with the theories of how he got in becoming wilder and wilder. The fat lady is replaced with the portrait of Sir Cadogan, who spends half his time challenging people to duels, and the other half making up ridiculously complicated passwords that he changes twice a day. Seamus calls him a complete lunatic and wonders if there's anyone else. But Percy says that everyone else was too frightened. Sir Cadogan is the least of Harry's worries, though, because now teachers are finding excuses to walk with him in corridors, and Percy tails him everywhere he goes. Then, Professor McGonagall summons him to her office to tell him that Sirius Black is after him, and say that she doesn't think it's a good idea for him to practice Quidditch in the evenings. Harry insists that he has to train since their first match is on Saturday, and she decides he can if Madame Hooch oversees the training sessions. The weather continues to get worse as they draw closer to Saturday, and Wood brings the team some unwelcome news about the match. Malfoy is using his injury as an excuse to get out of playing, so instead of playing Slytherin, they will be up against Hufflepuff. Wood is worried because they've been practicing all the moves to play against Slytherin, and Hufflepuff has a new captain and seeker, Cedric Diggory, who is very good. The day before the match, Wood keeps hurrying up to Harry to give him more pointers, and it takes so long that Harry ends up late to defense against the Dark Arts class. He dashes inside and apologizes to Professor Lupin, only to find that Professor Snape is the one teaching the class. Since Harry is ten minutes late, Snape takes ten points from Gryffindor and tells him to sit down. He asks where Professor Lupin is, and Snape says that he's too ill to teach. He takes another five points away and tells him to sit down again, and threatens to take fifty if he doesn't comply. As Harry sits down, Snape returns to teaching, commenting on the lack of organization, saying there's no record of what Lupin had been teaching them. Hermione tries to tell him what Professor Lupin has covered, but he just tells her to be quiet. He tells the class they will discuss werewolves, and Hermione speaks out to let him know they are supposed to start hinky punks. Snape tells her that he is the one teaching the lesson, not her, and commands the class to open to page 394. As they open their books, Snape asks for someone to tell him the difference between a regular wolf and a werewolf. Hermione raises her hand, but he ignores her and criticizes the class when no one can answer. Parvati tells him that they aren't supposed to be on werewolves, and Snape tells her to be silent. Hermione again speaks out to tell him the differences. Snape tells her it's the second time she's spoken out of turn and takes five more points from Gryffindor for her being an insufferable know-it-all. This makes the rest of the class mad, and Ron bursts out that he asked a question and she knows the answer. Why ask if you don't want to be told? Snape gives him a detention, and for the rest of the class, everyone sits in silence and takes notes on werewolves. At the end of class, he assigns them an essay on how to recognize and kill werewolves. He tells Ron to stay behind to arrange his detention, and Harry and Hermione move out of earshot before going on a tirade about Snape's behavior and wondering why he has it in for Lupin. Ron catches up with them and angrily tells them that Snape is making him scrub all of the hospital bedpans without magic. Harry wakes up at 4.30 the next morning to Peeves blowing on the back of his neck. He tries to fall back asleep, but can't, and gets dressed for Quidditch. 
As he's leaving his dormitory, he catches Crookshanks trying to sneak in and nudges him away, telling him to leave Scavers alone. He hangs out in the common room in front of the fire until it's time for breakfast, and then heads to the Great Hall. Eventually, the rest of the team show up too, and they all head to the changing rooms. Wood is so nervous he can't even speak, and he instead just beckons them out to the pitch. The wind and rain is so intense that Harry is soaked within five minutes and can't see anything through his glasses. Wood calls for a timeout, and Hermione runs up to them with an idea. She performs impervio on Harry's glasses so they repel water and he's able to see. They go back to playing, and a flash of lightning illuminates the silhouette of a giant dog in the top and empty row of seats. When Harry looks closer, the dog is gone. In that time, Cedric Diggory spots the snitch and goes tearing after it. Harry urges his Nimbus 2000 forward to follow him, but the air starts to grow colder, and all sound seems to disappear. Harry takes his eyes off the snitch and looks down, seeing about a hundred Dementors standing below him. He again hears the woman screaming, this time pleading, saying, Not Harry, not Harry. And another voice tells her to stand aside as she continues to plead for Harry's life. He falls from his broom as he hears a shrill voice laughing, and then everything goes dark. Hearing whispering voices talking about how scary that was, Harry comes to, unsure of where he is and what's happening. He opens his eyes and finds himself in the hospital wing, surrounded by the Gryffindor team and Ron and Hermione. They are all very relieved when he wakes up and tell him that he fell off his broom about 50 feet, and that Diggory got the snitch just after he fell. Harry realizes that Wood isn't there, and Fred tells him that he's still in the showers. He and George try to comfort Harry, letting him know that he's never missed the snitch before, and it's not over yet since they only lost by 100 points. Madame Pomfrey shows up and tells the team to leave him in peace, but Hermione and Ron stay with him. Hermione tells Harry that Dumbledore was really angry. He ran onto the pitch and waved his wand to slow him down as he fell, and then turned on the Dementors and drove them away with a silvery charm. He magicked Harry onto a stretcher and walked him up to the school. Everyone thought he was dead. Harry asks about his broom, and Ron and Hermione look at each other, then reluctantly explain that the wind blew it away and it hit the Whomping Willow. Hermione dumps Harry's Nimbus 2000 onto the bed. It's in a dozen splintered pieces. The movie scene starts on Professor Dumbledore telling Filch to secure the castle and sending the students to the Great Hall. The camera focuses on Harry's face as everyone rushes down the stairs. The scene cuts to the portcullis lowering over the castle's entrance with the full moon in the background and the doors closing and locking multiple times. It cuts again to outside the castle as Dementors gather around it, floating over the Great Lake. As the lights go out in the castle, a very faint howl can be heard in the distance. Shifting again, the scene changes to the Great Hall, where the students are sleeping on the floor in purple sleeping bags, as Filch reports to Dumbledore that he searched the astronomy tower and the owlery and there was nothing there. Flitwick says that the third floor is clear as well, and then Snape billows in and shares that he's done the dungeons and there is no sign of black anywhere in the castle. As they walk up the aisle of sleeping students, Dumbledore says that he didn't really expect him to linger, and Snape comments on how remarkable it is that he managed that feat and wonders if Dumbledore has any theories on how he managed it. Dumbledore says he has many, each as unlikely as the next. Snape reminds Dumbledore that he expressed concern for his appointment of Professor Lupin, but Dumbledore cuts him off to tell him that not a single professor in this castle would help Black enter. He insists that the castle is quite safe and says he is willing to send the students back to their houses. As they talk, the camera focuses on Harry, who is lying with his back to them, wide awake. 
He listens in as Snape asks if they should warn Potter, and Dumbledore says, Perhaps. For now, let him sleep. They stop in front of Harry, and Dumbledore looks down at him, with the Great Hall's ceiling reflecting the starry night behind him, as he says, For in dreams we enter a world that's entirely our own. The camera pushes into Dumbledore's face as he continues. Let them swim in the deepest ocean or glide over the highest cloud, as Snape looks on and listens. The camera glides up and over Dumbledore's head as shooting stars fly through the night sky. The scene changes to the Whomping Willow, where a single leaf falls off a branch and dances to the ground. Once it lands, all of the leaves fall off at once, and the tree shudders to clear the rest. Transitioning to the Defense Against the Dark Arts classroom, the students are sitting at their tables when Snape enters and waves his wand to close the windows as he walks up the aisle to the front of the class, lowers the projector screen, and tells them to turn to page 394. As they all get the books and begin turning pages, Harry asks Snape about Professor Lupin. Snape tells him that that's not really his concern, just that he finds himself incapable of teaching at the present time. He walks around behind a podium next to a projector and repeats for them to turn to page 394. He taps his wand on the projector to turn it on, then waves it at Ron, who is dawdling, as he turns pages in his book. Ron is surprised as his book turns on its own to page 394 and says, Werewolves! Hermione appears from nowhere, also surprising Ron and says they have been learning about red caps and hinky punks and aren't due to start nocturnal animals for weeks. Snape tells her to be quiet and asks the class for the difference between a werewolf and an animagus. Hermione raises her hand, but Snape says, No one? How disappointing. And Hermione answers the question anyway, saying that an animagus elects to turn into an animal, but a werewolf has no choice. He transforms at each full moon and no longer knows who he is. He'd kill his best friend if he crossed his path. She says that the werewolf only responds to the call of its own kind, and Malfoy howls. Snape scolds her for speaking out of turn for the second time, and asks if she is incapable of restraining herself, or if she takes pride in being an insufferable know-it-all, and takes five points from Gryffindor. Ron says he's got a point, and Malfoy blows on a paper crane to magically send it flying to Harry. Snape then assigns them all two rolls of parchment on the werewolf, with particular emphasis on recognizing it, due Monday morning. Harry reminds him that it's Quidditch tomorrow, and Snape tells him to take extra care because loss of limb will not excuse him, and again tells him page 394. As Snape continues lecturing about werewolves, Harry opens the note for Malfoy and sees an animated doodle during a Quidditch match, where a stick figure Draco throws a ball at him, and he then gets struck by lightning. Shifting to the actual Quidditch match during a lightning storm, an umbrella is whipping through the air over the scene as the players fly around the Quidditch pitch. The camera pans over the crowd as they chant, Let's go, Gryffindor! and cheer for Harry. As the players pass around the quaffle, lightning strikes the middle Quidditch hoop, and a player's broom catches on fire. Harry has to dodge the player, and the Hufflepuff seeker sees the snitch. He follows it up into the clouds, with Harry close behind him. Lightning strikes the snitch, and the Hufflepuff seeker is electrocuted and goes tumbling away. Harry is left in the clouds, where another lightning strike lights up the shape of the Grimm in the clouds. The snitch flits in front of him and darts away. Harry chases after it, his arm outstretched as the rain turns to ice, and his goggles begin to freeze. 
He has to dodge the umbrella and notices that he is being pursued by Dementors. He flies up higher and drops to avoid them, but ends up surrounded by them. One Dementor gets right up into his face and starts feeding off Harry, who falls off of his broom and hurtles towards the ground. Dumbledore stands, reaches out an arm, and says, Arresto Momentum, slowing Harry's fall as the screen goes black. With the screen still black, some voices are talking about how Harry looks. The scene transitions with an iris out, showing Harry's point of view as if his eyes are opening. Hermione, Ron, Fred, George, Neville, Seamus, and another Gryffindor are all gathered around him, looking relieved that he's waking up. The camera cuts to Harry in the hospital bed, and he sits up as Hermione sits on the bed and asks him how he is feeling. He sarcastically says, oh, brilliant, and asks what happened. Ron tells him that he fell off his broom, and Harry continues the sarcasm, saying, Really? I meant the match. Who won? Everyone backs away a little bit, and Hermione stands up, telling him that no one blames him, because the Dementors aren't supposed to come on the grounds. Dumbledore was furious, and sent them off immediately after saving him. Ron hesitates a little, but tells him that there is something else he should know. He unwraps a Gryffindor flag and holds up part of Harry's broken broom, saying that it's sort of blew into the Whomping Willow. This section actually stays pretty well lined up overall. As usual, there's definite streamlining that omits part of the chapter and some minor detail changes. But from beginning to end, the movie does it pretty close to how the book had it. Yeah, they both start out with Dumbledore sending all the students to the Great Hall so they can search the castle. In the movie, he specifically tells Filch to secure the castle. The book includes the detail of him waving his hand and making hundreds of purple squashy sleeping bags appear. Which was our trivia question and is also definitely shown in this scene. Hey. Aha. Uh -huh. Dumbledore also leaves the head boy and girl in charge, and of course, Percy rises to that occasion, ordering everyone to get in their sleeping bags and that lights will go out in ten minutes. Harry, Ron, and Hermione grab sleeping bags and head to a corner to talk about what happened. The movie doesn't show any of that. <laughs> Instead, it focuses on Harry's concerned face as everyone heads to the Great Hall, and then cuts to the portcullis lowering over the castle's entrance. What is really cool about this scene, though, is the very subtle inclusion of the full moon in the background as things are being locked down. We were actually watching this part together and noticed that for the first time as we were preparing for this episode... Yeah, it was kind of like a, oh, wait, no wonder Lupin wasn't present in this scene. And then it cuts again to a shot outside the castle, where all the Dementors are floating over the lake and around the castle as the lights go out, and you actually do hear a very faint howl, which I just, I love that touch. And I had never noticed it before. Mm -hmm. It's so cool that it doesn't seem to matter how many times you watch something, you can always find something new to notice. Right? And this was some really subtle foreshadowing that the film included because those who were watching the movie without first having read the books wouldn't have had any idea that Lupin's a werewolf. Yeah, they really set that up well. It also completely explains why Lupin wasn't in class and Snape had to take over the teaching. Which we will talk more about in a bit. Mm-hmm. In the book, the Great Hall is buzzing excitedly as everyone is discussing how Sirius Black could have gotten into the castle and of course, there's a moment where Hermione has to remind them what Hogwarts of History says all about the different charms to protect the castle. Then Percy says it's time for lights out and there is to be no more talking. From the scene outside with the Dementors in the Howl, the movie then cuts into the Great Hall. Once 
basically everyone is already asleep. Even though it is pretty dark for this scene, it still seems quite clear that they are all sleeping in purple sleeping bags, like the book described. So, yay on them for getting that detail correct. Right? The movie streamlined this part just a bit, since we know in the book that they didn't actually go to sleep, the volume just sort of lowered to a whisper as the students continued to discuss things. Every hour, a teacher would stop in to check on them, and then at three in the morning, Dumbledore came in to check with Percy, who happened to be standing right near Harry, Ron, and Hermione, who all pretended to be asleep so that they could do what they do best and listen in on the conversation. <gasps> they never do that. I don't no, know what you're never. talking about. What? Never. <laughs> this lines up pretty well with what the movie shows, except Percy isn't in the movie scene. Filch is reporting to Dumbledore that there's nothing in the astronomy tower or the Owlery, and Flitwick says that the third floor is clear. Then Snape makes his usual billowy entrance and informs Dumbledore that Black is not in the dungeons or anywhere in the castle. The book had Dumbledore tell Percy that everything was clear, and then Percy asked about the fat lady. She was found hiding in a map of Argyleshire on the second floor. Dumbledore said that when she calms down, he will have Filch restore her, and it always makes me wonder if he can paint. That's a really good question, because it's not like he can use magic to restore her. Right? Huh. It's just literally something that lives in the back of my mind. But then Snape shows up, and despite the change in who was present for this conversation, it stays pretty much the same between them. In both, Dumbledore said that he didn't expect Black to linger, and Snape wonders if he had any theories on how he might have gotten in. Yeah, then in both, Dumbledore responds that he has many, each as unlikely as the next. In the book, because Percy is right there, Snape makes a subtle reference to a conversation they had before the start of term and says that it seems impossible that Black could have entered the school without inside help. The movie takes a much more direct approach, with Snape flat out mentioning his concern for the appointment of Lupin. Though right as he is saying Lupin, Dumbledore completely cuts him off. You have to know what he is saying to know what he says, you know what I mean? Yeah. In both, Dumbledore's response is to say that he doesn't believe a single person inside this castle would have helped Black enter it. At this point in the book, Dumbledore cuts off the conversation with Snape and says that he told the Dementors that he would report to them once the search of the castle was complete. Percy asked if they had wanted to help, and he got a very cold response about how no Dementor will ever cross the threshold of the castle while he is headmaster. He leaves, followed by Snape, and then Ron wonders what that was all about. In the movie, after Dumbledore makes the comment about no one in the castle helping Black enter, he insists that he thinks it's safe now and that he'd be willing to send the students back to their houses. So during this scene in the movie, as Snape and Dumbledore are talking, they're walking up the aisle of sleeping students, getting closer to Harry, which is basically how the movie has him able to listen into their conversation. But it was during this scene in filming that Alan Rickman and Michael Gammon actually put a fart machine inside Daniel's sleeping bag to make him laugh during the really quiet moments. <laughs> There's a great video of it, so we'll share the link with you so you can see it. It's pretty mm, funny. It really is. Oh my god. <laughs> Boys and their farts, I tell you what. Farts are funny. <laughs> are they, Ellen? I'm just saying, you've met my husband. Those farts are not funny. Fart jokes are funny. But the camera focuses on Harry as he is lying with his back to them, wide awake and listening to their conversation. Snape wonders if they should warn Potter. Nah. What good would that do? I mean, kid's gonna fuck off and get almost killed yet again, just like he's done 
I don't know, the last two years? Because that's how Potter rolls. I mean, it's totally his third best skill. <laughs> Quidditch, meddling, and damn near getting killed. So why bother with warnings? Right? What Dumbledore actually says is, perhaps, for now, let him sleep. Then they stop right in front of Harry, and hippie Dumbledore lights up some gillyweed as he says, For in dreams we enter a world that's entirely our own. This is a total hippie Dumbledore moment. Mm -hmm. It also doesn't happen in the book at all, but I don't mind it because it's another one of the few movie moments where Dumbledore actually felt like Dumbledore. I'm telling you, it's because he's hippie Dumbledore. Because as he goes on to say... Let them swim in the deepest ocean or glide over the highest cloud. And Snape is just standing in the background looking at Dumbledore like, Huh? If you watch really closely, you can see him give just the slightest little head tilt. Oh my god, it's so subtle, uh -huh. but still seems to say so much. <laughs> Seriously. Probably wondering what he's smoking. Do you ever think the other teachers get tired of all Dumbledore's inspirational quotes? Like, dude, why must you always talk in cross-stitch? Because he's hippie, Dumbledore. Also, why have this conversation with Snape in the middle of the Great Hall, surrounded by sleeping bags full of children who are all gonna want to listen in? Like, not to mention, they aren't even trying to speak in hushed tones at all. Maybe do that shit in your office, guy. Just saying. But then how would Harry overhear? He'd figure it out. I mean, it is his second best skill, after all. <laughs> Good point. But anyway... The camera then glides up and over Dumbledore's head as shooting stars fly through the night sky. And I legitimately want to learn charms strictly so that I can make my ceiling look like the night sky, like the Great Hall does. That would be really cool. Mm-hmm. I've considered painting a ceiling like that before, but it is a lot of work. I've considered that before, too, and then I remembered I can't paint for shit. <laughs> But anyway, the movie includes another unnecessary transition, though I still love that the Whomping Willow became an actual character in this movie, especially considering the huge part it ends up playing to the plot. Yeah, and I enjoyed the cinematic effect that the transitions created. I always knew this was my favorite of the films, but it wasn't until we really started analyzing things that I really understood why. The cinematography is really quite phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in this transition, the one leaf falls from the tree and dances its way down to the ground. Then as soon as it hits, the rest all just fall off at once and the tree shudders. It's a quick and pretty way to create a passage of time before cutting to the Defense Against Dark Arts class. Though this movie transition cuts out the fact that the fat lady is temporarily replaced by Sir Cadogan, who drives everyone mad by challenging them to duels and making up ridiculously difficult passwords that he keeps changing. There is a deleted scene with something pretty similar. Yeah, I really wish they had left that in. Same here. Poor Sir Cadagan. He deserves his time. I love that Ron just is like, Yeah, we'll call you if we need someone mental. That is actually a line straight from the book. Mm -hmm. He says it right after Sir Cadogan helps them find divination. Ah. So, most of that scene was actually taken from other parts of the book and pieced together into that one, so. Yeah. It would have been nice to have it. It was actually accurate, just in a different place. Yeah. A semi-different place. It was there. It was vaguely accurate. <laughs> yeah, it was vaguely accurate. I feel like you could say that about... Most of the movie? A good portion of this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also left out is teachers finding reasons to walk in the corridors with Harry, and Percy basically following him everywhere like an extremely pompous guard dog, 
which Harry suspects is on Molly's orders. That is 100% something Molly would do. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Then McGonagall summons Harry to her office to inform him that Black is after him, which he, of course, already knows. And I just picture him sighing and saying, I know, Sirius Black is after me, in a really monotonous and bored tone for this part. Same here, like... Old news, lady. But then she tries to tell him that maybe it's not a good idea for him to practice Quidditch in the evenings. And Harry has to talk her into changing her mind. So Madame Hooch now has to oversee the training sessions. They all but eliminated Quidditch from this film, so there was really no need to include this detail. Though it would have been fun to see some more Madame Hooch. Cause, you know, Hooch is crazy. Hooch is crazy. Crazy Madame Hooch! No, still doesn't work. Just... Crazy Gary Oldman. That's so much better. It was worth a shot. Yeah, I guess. But anyways, the book also describes the weather getting worse and worse, and Malfoy using his injury as an excuse to get them out of the Quidditch match. So instead of playing Slytherin that Saturday like they'd been training for, the Gryffindors find out they'll be up against Hufflepuff. The movie didn't bother setting any of that up, because why? When we get to the Quidditch match in this section, it's pretty clear that they're playing Hufflepuff, but they don't ever really make a thing out of it. Olive Herwood is completely panicking about it, since Hufflepuff has a new captain and seeker, Cedric Diggory. The mention of his name makes Katie, Alicia, and Angelina all giggle, but Fred is not impressed by the news. (laughs) Olive Herwood panics even more, since he thinks they aren't taking it seriously. I would have loved to see Oliver Wood in one of his fanatical panic moments like this. But no, the movie just had to cut him out completely. Right? They could have also shown him regularly approaching Harry between classes the day before the match to give him more fanatical tips. But no, no Oliver Wood. In the book, the third time he does that, he actually makes Harry ten minutes late to Defense Against the Dark Arts class. And Harry runs in and apologizes to Professor Lupin, only to realize that Snape is the one in the classroom. The movie just cuts to this class after the Whomping Willow transition. And it does that thing again where all the students are already in class, but their teacher isn't in the room. So Snape can just billow into the classroom like, Alright you little fuck, sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. The way the movie did this section lines up pretty well to the book, but definitely with some minor changes. Since Harry shows up 10 minutes late, Snape takes away 10 points and tells him to sit down. Harry, being Harry, doesn't sit down and instead asks where Professor Lupin is. In the movie, he does ask this too. He just is already sitting in his seat because apparently Snape is the one who is late. 10 points from Slytherin. What? Hey, no. Max just earned those from Quincy. Well, if he's the first one to answer our trivia question from this episode, then maybe he'll earn them back. (gasps) Rude. But let's just keep rolling. In the book, Snape tells Harry that Professor Lupin is feeling too ill to teach and reiterates that he needs to sit down. Harry still doesn't and loses another five points. Snape also threatens taking away 50 more if he has to ask him to sit down again. I mean, that makes sense. But I actually just want to think that Snape was secretly super stoked to sub for Lupin. Like, maybe he stayed up late trying to choose the right robes to wear. Like, well, I do like these obsidian black robes, but I'm not sure they're billowy enough. Maybe I'll just go with the midnight black ones. Ooh, or the ink black ones. They bring out my eyes. 
Decisions, decisions. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I just owl ordered a new set of ebony roads that are perfect for flouncing. I wish those had arrived already. I should have signed up for Almazon Prime. Almazon Prime? Is that what I really? Yeah, it's that delivery service that was started by Jeff Bezor. Wow. Well, that just happened. <laughs> Jeff Bezor. Oh my fucking god. All right, but anyways. The movie actually first has Snape tell them all to turn to page 394, which is just iconic. Just Oh, is. completely. You know? And then Harry asks about Lupin, and Snape tells him that it isn't really any of his concern, just that he finds himself incapable of teaching at the time. And random unnecessary side note, I absolutely love the phrase, suffice it to say. I don't know why. It's just always been something I love. It's especially excellent coming from Alan Rickman. Yeah, you get it. Yeah. Ellen gets me. Ellen, you get me. You just do. I'm here for you. <laughs> Snape then repeats for them to turn to page 394. And then when Ron is taking his sweet time turning pages... He's fiddle-fucking. Ron is totally fiddle-fucking. Fiddle-fucking? Did you say fiddle-fucking? Yeah. It's like putzing, but funnier. He's fiddle-fucking. fiddle fuck. That just brings up so many weird mental images for me, and I just don't know what to do with them. <laughs> My friend Carla taught me that word. It makes me giggle. <laughs> okay, then. Ron was fiddle-fucking. Ooh, that is fun to say. I have to Isn't it? I have to agree. Ron was fiddle-fucking, and Snape waves his wand to make it turn to page 394, causing Ron to look at it and say, Werewolves? And at this point, Gaslighting Hermione shows up and informs Snape that they aren't due to start nocturnal animals yet. It was a little different in the book. Snape comments on how there's no record of what Lupin has taught so far, and Hermione tells him what they've covered. This prompts Snape to say he wasn't asking for information, just commenting on the lack of organization, and Dean to say that Professor Lupin was the best defense against the dark arts teacher they've ever had. Which, obviously, he couldn't say in the movie, since, you know, he already had his one line. Side note, had they left in the deleted scene, he would have had two lines this movie. True. But they always could have just given that line to Bem. Fucking Bem. That's ridiculous. It's a terrible name. Ugh. Right. <laughs> but then Snape tells them that they're going to learn about werewolves and to turn to page 394. So they use the same page from the book. That's neat. <laughs> this is when Hermione tells him that they aren't due to start werewolves yet. So it's fairly similar. Yeah, in both, Snape has no interest in hearing what she has to say. Shocker, I know. In the movie, he asks the class what the difference between a werewolf and an animagus is. In the book, he asks for the difference between the werewolf and the true wolf. But I don't mind this change, since animagi are pretty significant to the plot. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice little tie-in to that, since they didn't show us McGonagall teaching them about him in Transfiguration. Yeah, it still worked for the sake of the plot. In both, Hermione raises her hand to answer, and Snape just completely ignores her and pretends like no one actually knows the answer. In the book, he actually criticized Lupin again for not teaching them the basic differences, but Parvati cuts him off to reiterate that they already told him that they haven't gotten as far as werewolves yet. And he snarls for silence and continues to go on about how behind their class was 
and Hermione just can't help herself, she has to speak out and give him the answer. Yeah, she does this in the movie too, just without the extra bit with Pravati included. Obviously, the answers are slightly different, since the questions were, but she says that an animagus elects to turn into an animal, but a werewolf has no choice. He transforms at each full moon and no longer knows who he is. He'd kill his best friend if he crossed his path. She also says the werewolf only responds to the call of its own kind, and Malfoy howls, because he's mature. Ow! I'm mature. (laughs) (laughs) That's an excellent Malfoy impression. Thank you. (laughs) Note the line, though. The werewolf only responds to the call of its own kind because that totally sets up a future moment. Yes, and we will talk more about that then. Mm -hmm. But it's not actually something from the book. It was just a way for the movie to make things more dramatic. In the book, Hermione just starts to say the differences and Snape cuts her off and takes away five points from Gryffindor for being an insufferable know-it-all. He does that in the book, too. Yeah, but it's handled differently, and this is one of those changes in Ron that makes me mad. In the book, because everyone hates Snape so much, they're furious that he took those points away and called Hermione a know-it-all, even though they have all done it themselves. Mm -hmm. Especially Ron, who even goes as far as to speak out and say, you asked us a question and she knows the answer. Why ask if you don't want to be told? This, of course, just lands him at detention, but the point is, he stood up for Hermione. Yeah. She may be a pain in the ass, but she's my pain in the ass, basically. Right. But in the movie, he just leans over and says, He's got a point, you know. Which is... I mean... That was my line. Like, that's what I was thinking. That's not what Ron should be thinking. Right. I don't like it. Like, come on. But in the book after that, everyone just takes notes in silence while Snape goes through past assignments and criticizes how Lupin graded them. (laughs) Then, at the end of class, he assigns them an essay that has to be two rolls of parchment long on ways to recognize and kill werewolves. In the movie, Draco blows a little origami crane note over to Harry. And this is just another example of Draco's inability to come up with any kind of good burn. For sure. But this happens as Snape is assigning the essay, which is basically the same thing, except he just says to emphasize recognizing a werewolf. Because at this point, the movie has decided that the subtle full moons and howls in the background just aren't good enough and are full-on force-feeding us the existence of a werewolf in this movie. Basically, yeah. He says that it's due by Monday morning, and I kind of hate that Harry tries to use the Quidditch card with Snape. Why the fuck would Snape care if you have a game? If anything, that's more of a reason for him to assign a pain-in-the-ass essay in the first place. I feel like that would have just made Snape respond with, in that case, make it three rolls of parchment. (laughs) It just reminds me of the jocks in high school trying to get out of schoolwork, because the big game is tonight. Mm -hmm. But really, he just tells Harry to take extra care, because loss of limb won't excuse him from the work. He then again says the iconic, page 394, and continues his lecture about werewolves as Harry opens the note from Draco. And the way Draco waggles his eyebrow at Harry, like, he's flirting, right? I mean, I've been out of the game for quite a while, for sure, but that looks to me like he's straight up eye-fucking Harry. I think you're right. I am honestly still surprised that that note didn't say, do you like me? Check yes or no. (laughs) So is every other dreary shipper. But I also wonder why Snape says there are several ways of becoming a werewolf. Like, there's just the one way, no? He goes on to state one of the reasons 
as being given the power of shapeshifting. But that's not a true werewolf, though. So, like, what the fuck? What does that mean? I don't think we were really supposed to be paying attention to what he was saying. It was just background noise while we focused on Harry and his love note. His love note that shows a drawing of stick figure Draco throwing a ball at Harry's head right before he gets struck by lightning. And in that sense, it's really the only way it could remotely be considered a good burn. (laughs) (laughs) Point Ellen. But none of that was in the book. They all just leave class and complain about how awful Snape is. Ron has to stay back and arrange his detention, and then he catches up with Harry and Hermione and calls Snape something that makes Hermione say, Ron! (laughs) But it's understandable, because Snape is making him scrub out all of the hospital bedpans without magic. How often do you think those hospital bedpans are actually getting used, though? Yeah, I, I don't even know why they would have the bedpans to begin with, but it would be really gross if they were commonly used. Right? Anyway, the book also includes another Peeves moment where he wakes Harry up on the morning of the Quidditch match at half past four by blowing on the back of his neck. It also includes another bit where they show us that Crookshanks is definitely weirdly persistent in his pursuit of scabbers because Harry has to nudge him away from their dormitory as he's heading down to the common room until breakfast. The movie scene transitions straight from Doodle Harry getting struck by lightning to the Quidditch match during a lightning storm. I actually really liked that transition, Mm -hmm. though it does streamline things. Nothing of major importance was left out, just breakfast, pre-match jitters from Oliver Wood, and the start of the match. Wait, they left out Oliver Wood? How can you say nothing of major importance was left out? (laughs) Touché. But aside from the fact that the movie definitely ramps up the drama in the Quidditch match, like with lightning striking and a broom catching on fire, it's mostly similar to how it happens in the book. Yeah, but it also streamlines it somewhat. In the book, Oliver Wood calls a timeout. They're up 50 points, but Harry doesn't think he'll be able to catch the snitch since he can't see through his glasses in the rain. Then Hermione shows up and casts Impervio on them, so his glasses will repel water. Yeah, that was definitely streamlined out. Though they did add in a part where Harry has to dodge the player whose broom caught on fire, and during this, the Hufflepuff Seeker sees the snitch and is going after it. Lightning then, of course, strikes the snitch and electrocutes the Hufflepuff Seeker, who is never named as Cedric Diggory in the movie. This leaves Harry up in the clouds during a storm. Great place to be. Right. And definitely more dramatic and different from the book. Because after the timeout, Harry can see well enough now that during a lightning strike, he notices the silhouette of a giant black dog sitting in the topmost empty row of the stands. And this distracts him from seeing the snitch. This is another one of those things that the movie dramatizes. Because lightning does strike, and we do see an outline of a giant dog, but it's not a real one. It's the shape of the grim in the clouds, basically. Yeah, it's definitely a reference To Harry spotting the dog in the stands? But we find out more on that later. There was no real reason for the movie to put the Grimm in the clouds, other than to be dramatic. It also foreshadows the fact that bad shit is about to go down. Like, you do have to respect Harry's determination to catch that goddamn snitch, even after watching the Hufflepuff get charred extra crispy and seeing the giant Grimm in the clouds, though. That is definitely some serious dedication. (laughs) Another slight difference is that the silhouette doesn't distract Harry from the snitch either. 
It actually just flits in front of him and darts away. Harry chases after it, reaching out for it when everything around him starts to freeze. He dodges an umbrella and finds himself surrounded by Dementors. Let the Dementing commence. <laughs> Seriously, though. Why the fucking Dementors fly? Aren't they terrifying enough as it is? Why not stick a pair of wings on a snake or a spider or that fucking creepy-ass jack-in-the-box clown of Pravati's while you're at it? Jesus! It's just uncalled for. Especially since they can't fly in the books. This is classic movie dramatization. In the book, Wood calls out to Harry to look behind him, and this is when Harry realizes that the dog distracted him from the snitch and that Cedric was in pursuit of it. He goes tearing after them both and then starts to feel that awful cold creep up on him as everything just goes silent. He looks down, not up, not around, down, because Dementors can't fly. And he sees about a hundred Dementors standing below. I repeat, standing. As it should be. Below. Because those fuckers should not be able to fly. It's not cool. Also, while we're on this subject, whose bright-ass idea was it to chase a metal ball during a lightning storm? Never mind the Quidditch hoops, which are really just a meteorological death trap, if I've ever seen one. And why are there so many spectators? Them fuckers are gonna catch their death being out in the rain like that. Like, I'm sorry, I have friends that I would truly die for, but I will not catch hypothermia just to watch their dumbasses play sports ball. That is also definitely some serious dedication. In case you missed it the first time. Oh, I didn't. Not at all. I was choosing to ignore it. Seriously? Stop it. You're done. Fine. They do say in the book that... Quidditch matches weren't called off for trifles such as thunderstorms, which kind of makes me wonder what would actually get a Quidditch match canceled or postponed. That should be a Potter pondering for our keepers to come up with a scenario that would actually get Quidditch canceled. I like it. Mm -hmm. But anyways, in the book, Harry starts to hear that woman screaming again, and this time it's coupled with some shrill laughter as he falls off his broom. In the movie, because they can fucking fly... Harry just ends up surrounded by Dementors. I get being dedicated, but maybe, just maybe, once your broom freezes over and the rain starts cutting your face, maybe then it's time to just call it a day and wait for that little golden bitch to fly a bit lower. You'd think. But one of the Dementors just gets right up on Harry and starts trying to suck face with him. Come here, Daddy, and give Grandma a kiss. Like, is it just me, or do you think the Dementors look a bit like they have a raging case of oral herpes? Well, now I do. There is nothing about that description that I can unsee. My job here is done. Anyway, Harry falls off his broom, and as he tumbles to the ground, Dumbledore stands up and reaches out as he says, Arresto momentum! And the screen goes black. In the book, it just sticks with Harry's point of view. He feels himself falling as he continues to hear the screaming and laughter, and then everything goes black. The next thing he's aware of is people talking about it being lucky the ground was soft, that they thought he was dead, that his glasses didn't even break, and how scary it was. He opens his eyes and finds himself in the hospital wing. The movie isn't that far off from the book here, so that's good. The screen stays black and you can hear voices whispering about how bad Harry looks. One of the twins makes a comment to Ron about how he'd look if they threw him off the astronomy tower. And I love that Harry woke up with some sass on his tongue. Like, 
right away, just saying that Ron would like a right sight better than he normally does. That is fun. Mm-hmm. And I especially like the iris out transition that makes it look like Harry's eyes are opening. Mm-hmm. Though that's not how it happened in the book. Harry just opens his eyes and Fred asks him how he's feeling. He sits up and asks what happened. And he finds himself surrounded by Ron, Hermione, and the rest of the Quidditch team, minus Olive Herwood. In the movie, he's surrounded by Ron, Hermione, the twins, Neville, and Seamus, plus another girl that isn't actually named. Yeah, at first I thought it was Angelina, but she's not in Quidditch robes like the twins, so maybe Lavender? Yeah, that sounds about right. Then Gaslighting Hermione is replaced by Grand Theft Audio Hermione, who is the one who asks how Harry is feeling. Sassy Harry strikes again, giving a very sarcastic, brilliant, as he sits up and asks what happened, like in the book. In both, they tell Harry he fell off his broom, but Harry is more interested in what happened with the match. In the book, they tell him that Diggory got the snitch just after Harry fell and they lost. This is also when Harry, re- when Harry realizes that Wood isn't there and Fred tells him that he's still in the showers. <laughs> Trying to drown himself. I love this line. <laughs> Poor Oliver Wood. Oliver Wood. So I said. In the movie, Harry sticks with the sass when Ron tells him that he fell off his broom and says, Really? I meant the match. They never directly tell him that they lost. Hermione just tells him that no one blames him because the Dementors aren't supposed to come onto the grounds. Not like they could have said that Diggory caught the snitch after they showed him get struck by lightning like that. Right? Hermione also says that Dumbledore was furious and sent the Dementors away right after he saved Harry, and I want to know how. Like, I'm sure I was just with a Patronus, but I honestly keep imagining Dumbledore yelling at them like, Mummy is very disappointed in you all. No dessert for any of you tonight. Now go to your rooms and think about what you've done. See, I just keep imagining the crowd booing the Dementors and yelling, You suck! (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) The movie scene ends with Ron telling Harry that there was one other thing, and he reveals Harry's very broken Nimbus 2000, and says that his broom sort of flew into the Whomping Willow. I love that he says sort of flew (laughs) into the Whomping Willow. But this was basically Hermione's line in the book, after Harry specifically asked about his broom. But Ron does get to say, well, you know the Whomping Willow, it... It doesn't like to be hit. (laughs) Then Hermione dumps a dozen splintered bits of wood onto Harry's hospital bed. And this is where the chapter ends. Which also brings us to the section for new and returning actors. And this time there really aren't any. But we can talk about Paul Whitehouse as Sir Katagan. Considering he was in a deleted scene technically. Which I'm still really mad that they left him out. Right. Because he was hilarious. He did a great job. He was delightfully crazy, like you expected him to be from the books. Mm-hmm. He reminded me of John Cleese on Speed, kind of. Like. <laughs> that actually might be a good description for Sir Cadogan compared to Nearly Headless Nick. He could be Nearly Headless Nick on Speed. <laughs> but yeah, he did great. I really wish that he'd had more than his background moments. We've mentioned that before, though. Yeah, there were some pretty good moments. I will say that much. True story. Yeah. But this will bring us to our Potter pondering. We ended up with two. The first one is, do you think Filch can paint? The other one is for you to make up a scenario that you think would actually get a Quidditch match canceled. Find the post on our Facebook page and share your thoughts. We look forward to reading them. This will bring us to our Sorting Hat story, which is from Lily Bamford. She writes... I went on Pottermore when I was younger, and it readily decided that I was a Ravenclaw. 
and that I have stayed for more than a decade. I'm very house-proud. I had no clue what my wand was, so I quickly took a quiz off Pottermore, because who remembers passwords these days? It is 11 inches long and made of holly with a phoenix feather core. And my Patronus, not from Pottermore but another quiz, is a stag. But I took another one too, and it said it's a hare. To be honest, I'm not greatly happy with a bunny, so I'll stick with a stag. I got interested in Harry Potter when my granddad gave me the first book and asked me to read it. I obviously devoured it and asked for the rest. He told me lately that when he was in Canada, where his boat had docked that day, he went to go get the last book. As he left the bookshop, where the queue was mainly children, a young girl asked him, Have you read it yet? So for years, Harry Potter was closely linked to my granddad and his constant asking where I was in the series. Now I am a nanny, and all I hear from the kids is, Let's pretend to be Harry Potter! You're Hermione! Let's go! And the Harry Potter merchandise is ridiculous! Like, how much tat can one franchise produce? So. Much. Tat. I had to ask what tat was. Because here it's short for tattoo. But it's apparently, like, junk or useless stuff. The franchise really has created a ton. But I can't be all that upset about it. Though we actually tend to prefer the fan-made Harry Potter products at this point, and there's even more of that. Like our own designs. Check them out on our website, justkeeprolling.com. Shameless plug. But really, though, thank you so much for sharing your sorting hat story with us, Lily. I love that you get to play Harry Potter with the kids that you nanny. That's pretty much amazing. Right. And if any of our other keepers out there listening would like us to read your sorting hat story in a future episode, you can email it to us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com. Let us know your house, wand, the wood, core, and length, how you got into Harry Potter, and anything else you might want to share with us. You can also just find our pin post on our Facebook page at JKR Podcast and share it there or message it to us. And that'll bring us to this week's trivia question, which is, what did Harry have to say to open the secret passage behind the one-eyed witch statue? The prize for the first one who responds with a correct answer and the code word hashtag mischief managed will get a bitch is a witch, motherfucker's a wizard, a just keep rolling, that's not how it happened in the book, that's not how it happened in the movie, or a pride sticker. Another way you can get a sticker is to rate and review us. If you're an Apple person, you can do it through the Apple Podcast or iTunes app. If you don't have Apple, you can write a recommendation on our Facebook page. Then email us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com to let us know you did, and we'll get back to you to figure out which sticker you want and where to send it. Don't forget to find us and follow us on Facebook at JKRA Podcast and Twitter and Instagram at justkeeprolling. Following us on Podbean at justkeeprolling.podbean.com will get you the episode as early as possible and give you a leg up in answering the trivia question. If you would like to support us as a patron for extra perks, you can go to patreon.com slash justkeeprolling. As always, any support you can give is greatly appreciated. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are shooting to have the first of our cooking show episodes up at the beginning of October. We also post our weekly podcast episodes, monthly blooper reels, vlogs, and other random videos. And join us next week when we talk about Chapter 10, the Marauder's Map, and the corresponding film scenes. Thanks for listening. We hope you hear us again. I'm Katie. I'm Ellen. Until the next time, just keep rolling. rolling.